Welcome to the College Connection Podcast, a podcast presented by the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador. This podcast is a series of regulatory-focused information and education sessions for RNs and NPs. This is the College Connection Podcast. Podcast. We have a very interesting show for you today. I'm very happy to introduce Brenda Carroll, who is the Director for Professional Conduct Review with the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador. Today, we will be exploring the regulatory process related to RN discipline. Hi, Brenda. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be able to join you today. That's awesome. We're really happy that you could that you could be with us here this morning. Brenda, can you tell us a little bit about why the college has a uh, professional conduct review process? Sure. I, it's a really good question because under the Registered Nurses Act, the College of Registered Nurses, and in every province, but specifically here in Newfoundland, has a mandate to protect the public. So this is part and parcel of the way the college as a whole fulfills that mandate of public protection. So part of the public protection piece, and people may not be aware, but one of the things the college does in its protection of the public role is we actually approve the curriculums for education programs. So that's the start of our role. Um, then in addition to that, once uh, students graduate from a recognized nursing program and they apply for licensure, we make sure that they have all the correct credentials and they have a proper criminal background check, all that kind of stuff to make sure that they're properly licensed. And then we maintain an annual registry, making sure that we know who's working, that everybody is working, is registered, licensed, has the credentials, has liability and protection insurance, those kinds of things. And then once you're working, um, the other piece of the public protection element that we oversee at the college is the continuing competency program. And that's just a way of making sure that nurses who are graduated and working stay current in their education and keep their practice aligned with best practice standards and changing and evolving things in the healthcare field. Um, And that's part of the role of the public protection and then my little piece of the public protection side is when things go amiss so when someone who's working so they're duly educated they're licensed they're registered they've hopefully completed their ccp however if you don't you'll come to my desk um but if things go amiss, so if someone puts in a complaint or an allegation that a registered nurse has not acted in a way that meets the standards of practice or has acted in a way that isn't congruent with the code of ethics, those allegations come to my desk. And it's the PCR department that manages those with the lens of, you know, what do we need to do to make sure the public is protected and the public safe? So we're very neutral in that process. We don't pick sides with the complainant. We're not here to specifically protect the registrant. We're here to make sure that there's a fair, transparent process and that gets to the right outcome. So that's the high level view of the of sort of, you know, why we have PCR. 
Mm-hmm. So, Brenda, can you tell us a little bit more about the PCR process? I know as a registered nurse, I've heard the terms QA, ADR, um, CAC. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the process? For sure. You know what? I mean, it's actually um, the whole process has a lens. Again, it's that public protection, but it's not public protection, I always say, we're not the police. We're not out there chasing down people. We don't just want to slap people with fines and and discipline people or punish people. That's not our lens. Our lens is when things come to us that there are concerns, we want to make sure that we work with the registrant to, to get them back to where they need to be, to make sure their practice is above the line and getting aligned with standards of practice and codes of ethics. And so what happens is we have an online complaint form and it's called a complaint form, but at this stage of the process, the technical term is an allegation because it's unproven. So an allegation comes in on that form to my desk. And my first process is to look at that with the lens of, okay, if everything in this uh, allegation were proven to be true, Is this something that the college should get involved in? And if it were all 100% true, would that be conduct that hits that threshold of the term we use as conduct deserving of sanction? So there's QA, which is sort of a proactive piece. If if we don't think it's going to hit that conduct deserving of sanction threshold, um, I actually refer that to the QA program, which is managed by the practice consultants. And it is a proactive non-disciplinary option to take the opportunity to correct practice before someone actually does something that falls into that really conduct deserving of sanction um, bucket. So for instance, if I got a complaint that um, someone, and these things happen, like we'll get an allegation Uh, in on the complaint form that says, um, you know what, my neighbor plays her music too loud at all hours of the night and she's a nurse and she should know that it's really important for me to get my sleep because I have a very important job and she's creating a health hazard for me um, because her noise disturbance is keeping me up at night and I think the college should discipline her. Well, I would look at that, first of all, and say, I'm not entirely sure that's the mandate of the college. It's not necessarily within our realm. That's more of a bylaw issue, those kinds of things. It's not really relevant. It just happens to be this person's a nurse. But in any event, even if the the college felt like they were going to get involved, someone shouldn't have a disciplinary record because of a, of a noise issue with their neighbor. So that might go to the QA program. And that QA process might be to work with the nurse to sort of say, okay, what can we do to give you some education and support to make sure that your conduct doesn't tip over that edge of being conduct deserving of sanction? Oftentimes what we see here is someone who says, listen, I went to the eMERGE department. Someone was rude to me, right? Like I was in the eMERGE department I asked for something. The nurse kind of snapped at me. Um, I didn't think she was very patient with me or I I didn't appreciate his response to me was kind of curt. Those kind of things. That's not 
ideally what we want to see our registrants engage in, but it's not something you should have a disciplinary history over. So in that instance, I would say this is probably an opportunity for quality assurance, and I would refer it to the practice department, and it's very separate from my discipline department. Practice department would meet with the registrant, discuss the situation, talk about how the registrant might uh, approach that situation differently in the future. Um, sometimes there's some educational referrals, some documents to read or videos to watch, modules to finish, those kind of things, a little bit of education support. And then oftentimes a reflective paper written by the registrant uh, outlining, here's what happened, here's what I learned, here's I'm going to apply what I learned, and here's how I would conduct myself differently in the future. And then they would discuss that with our practice. So that's the QA part. Okay. And so, Brenda, I have a two-part question. Is it mandatory to participate in QA? And what's the impact um, to the RN and NP who goes through the QA? Like, does it stay on their record? Or So, yeah. So, what's the impact? Um, the first part of the question is, it, is it mandatory? No, it's not mandatory. Um, however, if a complaint comes in, like if the complaint form comes in and we offer the registrant QA and they choose not to avail themselves of the quality assurance improvement opportunity, I don't have any authority just to dismiss that allegation. And so it would then go to the CAC committee and the registrant would be probably hoping that the CAC would dismiss it, but you never, I don't control what the quality or the complaints authorization committee will do. So oftentimes it's a little bit of, you know what, because this doesn't go on your record, that's the second part of your question, is we don't, we track in a folder on a list, only on my personal access drive, the registrants that we offer quality assurance to. And that's only because if another instance comes up that is similar in situation or similar in fact pattern, we wouldn't necessarily offer QA a second time. So we track who internally, who gets to the opportunity to participate in QA, but it wouldn't show up on your formal record. It wouldn't show up on a verification statement if you were applying in another jurisdiction. You wouldn't have to check off um, on your renewal that you've been involved in a disciplinary act uh, uh, process. And again, I caution you, when you're applying for a registration, that question that every jurisdiction has about previous disciplinary history, previous complaint, you have to read those very literally. So although I'm telling you that here in Newfoundland, when you renew, you would not have to check that box saying, I've been involved in a disciplinary matter. QA is not considered disciplinary. Other jurisdictions may say, have you ever had a complaint filed against you? In which case you would have to check yes. But that's a little uh, red herring that we're going down a little bit of a rabbit hole with that. But my advice to you, my tip to you is if you're applying and you have those questions, call the agency that you're applying to, explain what's happened, get advice before you check that box if you're not sure. So QA for us internally, totally kind of off the official book. It's considered a fireside chat, opportunity for improvement. 
It's voluntary in a way, but if you choose not to participate in QA, you will move into the actual true PCR or professional conduct review process. Thank you. So Brenda, yeah, so QA seems like that preventative upstream approach, hey, for some registrants. Yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely. And you know what, we've done some follow-up with some of the registrants who have engaged in QA and most have come back and said they find it beneficial and they're grateful Mm -hmm. for the opportunity to be able to have that reflection and that support to sort of say, oh yeah, you know what, I wasn't on my A game that day. That was kind of a near miss. And Thanks for giving me some tools and, and some skills so to recognize that from happening again and be able to course correct myself before I do something that is um, disciplinary. So then, Brenda, what is meant by alternative dispute resolution? Yeah, so we call that ADR or the other term that might be clear for people is a settlement or resolution agreement. So what happens when that form comes into me and someone has a complaint, if I feel it's not appropriate for quality assurance, which means if everything on that form were proven to be true, that would reach the threshold of conduct deserving of sanction. So this is disciplinary conduct if it were all proven to be true. And so what happens when I get those forms in and I think, oh yeah, this is concerning conduct. This, if it were true, would be something the college would discipline someone for. We send that out to the registrant once we have a very clear picture of what the complainant's concern is. We send whatever information we have to the registrant. The registrant then has the opportunity to respond to that um, allegation. And they have, uh, we always recommend that they um, receive legal advice. And if you, when you register, check that box and get the additional coverage through CMPS, they will afford you assistance um, in navigating these types of situations. Um, not necessarily so if you only have the basic liability insurance. And again, CMPS's processes change regularly. So that's the current state. It may change going forward. but at present, if you have the additional coverage, you will get assistance. And then we get the response, like the the registrant's response to the allegation. If the registrant response comes back and says, oh, yes, you know what? Um, I was rude to that person in the ER. And not only was I rude, but I used a term maybe like a racial term or a derogatory term or a term that wasn't um, appropriately inclusive. Let's say it was that level. So now we've gone from something that may or may not be our business to, okay, you've been a little bit rude, but maybe that's not disciplinary. But now we've stepped up from rude to actually, you know, sort of conduct that's concerning. Maybe you've someone's cursed at a patient or used an inappropriate uh, racial term. That would be something the college would consider reaching that threshold of conduct deserving of sanction. So now we've sent it out to the registrant. The registrants come back and said, oh, I'm mortified. 100%. I lost my cool. 
there was all this stuff going on and I had all this stuff going on at home. And, you know, it was like a 12 hour shift and all these compounding factors for sure. But yeah, I did that. And I realized as soon as it, those words came out of my mouth that that I was, that was wrong. If I get a response like that, where the registrant says, I'm hundred percent accountable for what happened. I acknowledge that that conduct was not appropriate and, and reaches that threshold of conduct deserving of sanction, then we can try and resolve the matter by a resolution agreement or ADR. We do need consent from the complainant. So they are involved in that process. And the complainants generally will consent to this. Um, I very rarely had anybody say no. So, and then we work with the registrant and we say, okay, what was the issue at hand here? We had some stress management. We had some anger management. We had some communication challenges. Um, maybe the person comes back and says, um, you know, I, I actually, I, I have a, a underlying addiction issue and I'm trying to, you know, deal with that. And, all of a sudden they disclose it's just the tip of the iceberg, this situation. Even when they get that complex that we have, like a full-on admission of some kind of underlying health issue, we can work with the registrant to resolve those things by consent. And we draft essentially a contract that says, here's what happened. Um, Everybody acknowledges that that's what happened. And everybody understands that that is conduct deserving of sanction. And any other information we'd gather, like the registrant has said that, you know, they were suffering from some stress and they were, whatever the case may be, we put that all in the beginning part. And then we sort of work and say, okay, what needs to happen to support the registrant to get them back to a place where they're practicing safely, competently, and ethically? And that can be a myriad of things. We have very complex um, settlement agreements that include um, for folks that um, have underlying um, addiction illnesses, we can say, you know, a removal from the workplace until they're cleared to return to work by a healthcare provider. Then when they return to work, there might be a restriction on, you know, sort of dispense or um administering narcotics or even being involved in the counting of narcotics or dealing with any kind of controlled substances for a period of time. Uh, There might be practice monitoring or chart audits to make sure that they're documenting everything appropriately and signing off on all medications and things. There might be coursework. There might be a communications coursework. There might be a medication administration coursework. Um, It might mean that if they're engaged with a counselor for the underlying illness, that we get um, periodic reports from a counselor. It might be um, drug and alcohol screening tests on a regular basis to make sure that they're not impaired um, or using any kind of uh, um, involved in any kind of substance abuse. And we can have agreements like that that go on for years. We have some where it's like, monthly um, screening testing that turns into every other month to quarterly to so you know and really the idea is what can supports can we put in place what education can we offer the registrant to get their practice back to a position that's safe competent ethical and protects the public 
And that's our goal. Our goal is to keep everybody in the workplace as much as possible. Like I said, there may be part a temporary removal from the workplace, but really our goal is to get everybody back to that safe, competent, ethical practice so that we have nurses in the workplace and the, and the public is protected. So those ADR agreements are um, can be quite complex and they're usually done by consent, but they're often, we've had some great success stories with registrants who have been in really challenging circumstances and they can be very simple. If you don't do your CCP, <laughs> if you don't submit your continuing competency, that's disciplinary. You're going to get an allegation because you've infringed the bylaws. And then we're going to do a contract with you saying, you know, you're going to remit your CCP. You're going to remit your CCP next year. You're going to do a little bit of education to understand the role of the regulator and the importance of CCP. And then you're going to remit um, next year and make, we're going to audit you going forward and probably do a reflection paper so that you, we, yeah, we get that you've understood the importance of all of this. So they can be simple and they can be quite complex. Brenda, I just had a quick question because um, the practice department is not usually involved in the PCR process, but can you explain how we often get uh, drawn into the uh, ADR process? Almost every ADR um, will include that same reflection paper that we ask of the QA participants. So once you've gone through your educational supports and you've gone through some of the um, remediation that's in those settlement agreements or ADR agreements, we request the registrant write a reflection paper. And again, it's that process of here's what happened, here's what went amiss, here's what I've learned, here's how I would deal with this situation differently. And we really ask in those situations that you're actually referring back to the standards of practice, the actual code of ethics. Sometimes I just get a story of, oh, this is what happened and I realized it was wrong and I won't let it happen again and I'll be more cognizant. And that's great. But what I really want to know is that someone's gone back and looked at those standards of practice and said, you know what, this is the part of the standards of practice I failed to meet. This is the indicator in the code of ethics that I that I was subpar on. And here's why these things are important. And here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And so once those reflection papers are written in the uh, settlement agreements, um, there's a meeting with a practice consultant to review that paper and have that conversation to sort of flesh out. Sometimes, you know, it's sort of like, well, they've got most of it here. They've got a, there's a little bit more I'd like them to really understand. And it's the practice consultants that have those conversations to really um, not test you on what you've written in your paper, but to make sure you have a full understanding of you know, what went wrong and why it was considered wrong and really make sure that you have a plan going forward to be able to avoid that kind of a scenario from happening a second time. Perfect. Thank you. So, so Brenda, you said for ADR, uh, you know, it can be very simple, complex, but I guess what I'm hearing from you is that accountability piece needs to be there in order to go through uh, ADR. So what if you're working with a registrant and they don't acknowledge any wrongdoing? Yeah. And you know what? That happens as well, right? Because we don't control how or what comes in as an allegation. And sometimes, you know, um, allegations come in that 
you know, maybe they aren't something that amounts to conduct deserving of sanction. Maybe the individual saying, listen, I wasn't the responsible party for this piece. I'm, I'm one of several that are named all kinds of things, or maybe it's sort of like, okay, this went amiss, but all of this didn't go amiss. So we get a mixed bag of those, those responses from the registrants that aren't a hundred percent. Yes. I acknowledge I did that. And yes, I agree. It's conduct deserving of sanction. So Anything short of that 100% acknowledgement and um, accountability becomes um, a disputed allegation. And when there's a dispute, either on facts or circumstances of the allegation, we collect that information. And that those complaints then go to what we call the Complaints Authorization Committee. So the Complaints Authorization Committee is made up of um, members from our board that are um, either public representatives or practicing RNs or NPs, and they review the complaint and the registrant response. And they make a determination that's called reasonable grounds to believe. So it's not 51% even. It's not that sort of balance of probabilities test. It's even a little less than that. And they will look at this reasonable grounds to believe and they will say, if everything here in front of us on the complaint and the response were true, is a reasonable grounds to believe that the registrant engaged in conduct deserving sanction. Sometimes they can't tell just based on the complaint and the response. So what they'll do is they'll appoint an investigator and we have neutral third-party outsourced investigators that aren't connected directly to our college who will then get all the information we have. And they are trained investigators. That's what this company does. They do nothing but investigations. And they are health professionals that do those investigations. And where, uh, where it's appropriate, they put nurses with the skills that related to the question as the investigator. So we have a very good quality of investigators and they investigators will take everything. They will interview registrants. They will interview witnesses. They will interview respondents. They will interview complainants and they will compile all that information into an investigation report. That report is simply a bunch of facts. The investigator draws no opinion conclusions as far as, and therefore I believe this is or isn't conduct observing sanction. They just say, here's what I can figure out. This is what all the parties are saying. This is what all the documentation shows. I've kind of tried to wade through all the confusion and give it to you in a package. And then that goes back to the complaints authorization committee and they try and determine if they can make a determination is a reasonable grounds to believe that the individual committed conduct deserving of sanction. If they very clearly can say, you know, we don't think that there's anything here. Like, you know, we sometimes will get um, a situation like oftentimes it's like we've had situations past where people have alleged a breach of privacy and they said, you know, my neighbor found out I had the surgery and the only way they could possibly know is because I know they're friends with this nurse in the OR. But we have, but there's nothing more than that. There's nothing more than, okay, well, they know each other, but that there's nothing to say, 
There's no evidence to support that that nurse from the OR said anything to the neighbor. They would probably dismiss something of that nature where there wasn't any evidence to support the allegation. They would dismiss it. So the CAC at that point can dismiss um, the complaint and say there's no reasonable grounds to believe that anything untoward happened here. If there was a little bit more detail there and um, they felt that, um, well, let's say, for instance, the nurse said, well, I didn't say anything to that person, but I think maybe my work schedule with the name of a patient was sitting on my counter. So I didn't breach confidentiality. I just left this paper out. Well, then the situation with the nurse, the nurse is saying, yes, I did something. And we know that that would be um, considered a breach. There's no point going to a hearing on that because the nurse is saying, yes, I did this, but I don't believe what I did is conduct deserving of sanction. But we know that safe management of documentation, if you fail, can be considered a breach of privacy and therefore would be against the standards of practice in the Code of Ethics. We're not going to find out anything new at a trial or a hearing. Um, so what then the CAC can do is they can caution and counsel the registrant and say, okay, you're acknowledging what you did but you seem to be missing the link that what you did was wrong. So we're going to caution you about your document management practices, and we're going to counsel you to go do this privacy module just to refresh your memory. Because there's no value in sending that to a whole hearing. We've got an admission of the conduct on the table. So they can caution and counsel at the CAC, or they can say, oh yeah, there's so much information here. We really feel like there's something terribly amiss here. It needs to go to a full adjudication tribunal hearing. And then they will refer that allegation. Now that allegation becomes an official complaint because we've got enough information on the table to say we've got enough evidence here to support that there's reasonable grounds to believe that the registrant engaged in conduct deserving of sanction. And so now we're going to call it a complaint. We're going to send official notice to the registrant that this is an official complaint against the registrant. And that complaint is going to go to a hearing. And the hearing adjudication tribunal, again, is made up of uh, public reps not from council, though. These public reps are publicly appointed. They're volunteers. And there's also volunteer RNs um, from the community that sit on those adjudication tribunals. And those adjudication tribunal hearings run just like any other civil or administrative law hearing. There's the adjudication tribunals, the judge, where we, through our internal legal counsel, present the complainant's concern. And the registrant, hopefully with their legal counsel, presents the registrant's position. And once the evidence is entered and all the arguments are heard, the adjudication tribunal will make a decision as to whether or not they believe that the registrant engaged in conduct deserving of sanction. And if they do, then they will um, order sanctions against the registrant. And interesting principled piece of information is 
we make a submission where there's a finding of conduct deserving sanction, the college will make a submission as to what they feel are appropriate sanctions. Everything that we put in that submission on sanctions is exactly what we would have put into an ADR resolution agreement. And so this isn't like the criminal court where when you do ADR, you're pleading down, you're making a plea bargain, you're getting a later sentence because you're not going to trial. That's not part of this equation. What we, my theory and our department theory on this is whatever is necessary to remediate the practice and improve practice that I would put in an ADR is the same thing I'm going to ask for if it goes to a hearing for sanctions. Because if it was going to solve the problem back at the beginning in an ADR, it's enough to solve the problem when the adjudication tribunal makes a decision that the conduct deserves a sanction. The only difference is where it goes to a hearing, the college has the opportunity to ask for costs against the registrant if we are successful. And I don't I, I say successful in the conduct deserving of sanction, but I need to be clear. Sometimes the right outcome is a dismissal. Sometimes there's just such a volume of information we don't know. And to be clear that the public's not at risk, it has to go to a hearing. And sometimes the right outcome is a dismissal. And that's okay. We we do not track our conviction rates here. That's not my that's not our goal. Our goal isn't, it's not a win-lose. It's get to the right outcome and make sure we had a fair, transparent process that ensures the right outcome with respect to the registrant and the registrant's conduct so that at the end of the day, the public is appropriately protected. Brenda, I have a question. What about if an allegation comes in and it's really serious and there may be some, you know, um, public safety issues? How do you deal with that? Yeah, and they do. They they certainly do come in and, um, you know, there is a mechanism under the Act where if an allegation comes in that we feel there's imminent risk to the public. So a very obvious example might be um, where someone um, is convicted of sexual assault, right? So, um, or even charged with sexual assault, which we might find out through the media. So Nurses have an absolute obligation to report any criminal code conviction themselves to the to the college. Doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do anything about that. You need to report it. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get an allegation because of it. We just need to be aware of it so we can make sure you're not a risk to the public. So that aside, sometimes what happens, and there was a situation where we had a nurse that it hit the newspaper and the media that there were charges laid for um, sexual misconduct, I think was the wording. And those came to my desk through like the OCM website. Somebody sent me a link. And so when we look at the story, we see the name of the registrant. We look up the registrant. The registrant in that situation was working with a vulnerable sector of clients and so now we're concerned that there might be risk to the public and so I can file um, an, a, a, an allegation against a registrant. I can file a complaint against a registrant as the director and we would make a recommendation that we could call an emergency meeting of the complaints committee 
and we they would likely make a recommendation to the council to consider an interim suspension or restriction of the registrant's license pending the outcome of the matter. So there is a mechanism built into the act. And even if that complaint comes in from the public or from professional practice, if we look at it on the face of it and say, oh, there's a significant risk here um, to the public, then we can expedite that complaints committee meeting to look at it immediately and they have the opportunity then to consider making a recommendation to council for interim suspension or restriction and it's then up to council to make that decision it's only a recommendation coming from the CAC and there's quite a test um, that they would have to sort of see and meet um, to ensure that they were being appropriately fair to the registrant and then they could, if they chose, either restrict or suspend someone's license. Brenda, I think you might have mentioned it, but when someone goes through um, the um, you know adjudication tribunal or through the CAC process, does that stay on um, the client, the uh, nurse's uh, record? Yeah. So everything other than QA will actually flag you in the system as having a complaint filed against you. And that's because it, whether it's resolved by ADR or a caution and counsel or a hearing, there's an admission somewhere or a finding somewhere that, yes, there's been conduct deserving of sanction. So you will be flagged in the system as having a complaint filed against you we publish certain things on the website. So um, QA is not published at all. Um, ADRs are published anonymously. So you'll, if you look on our website, those resolution agreements will say the director resolved the complaint between the complainant and a registrant. The registrant was alleged to have done A, B, and C. And the agreement had the registrant engage in, you know, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we publish that anonymously. And we do those anonymously because there hasn't been a hearing. There hasn't been a full evidentiary hearing. So it wouldn't necessarily be fair. And our current process is that those ADRs get published anonymously. So if someone was the complainant in the public and they were saying, I complained about this nurse who did something, they can at least look and say, oh, yeah, that was my situation. I see it's resolved. We do give them notice, but they can look it up as well. If it goes to an actual hearing, and so when there's an actual full evidentiary hearing in front of the adjudication tribunal, those outcomes are published with the registrant's name. So it will say Brenda Carroll was involved in an adjudication tribunal hearing or the adjudication tribunal dismissed an app, app allegation against or complaint against Brenda Carroll or they there was a finding of conduct serving a sanction and here's what the sanctions were. So only the hearings get published with names. Everything but QA will stay on your record and will show up on a verification statement if you're applying to another jurisdiction. Okay. So, uh, so, Brenna, just to be clear, if I went to uh, a hearing and it was dismissed, does that um, still show on my like registration? Um, yes. 
Okay. It will say yeah. it will say complaint <clears throat> dismissed. So it does get a it gets a little tag on the end of it. You get checked okay. as complaint, and it okay. will say either resolved or dismissed okay. or pending resolution. If it's still if you're still working through the terms of like the sanctions or an ADR, then you know you'll be sort of pending resolution. Um, but once you complete all the terms of the sanction, it'll say resolved. And if it's dismissed, it'll clearly say dismissed. Okay. And Brenda, you're, the phrase you're using a lot um, today is conduct deserving of sanction. What exactly does that mean? So that's a term that comes from the Act, and it's uh, Section 18C of the Act. sort of says a nurse is guilty of an offense if they engage in conduct deserving of sanction. And there's five types of conduct deserving of sanction. And they kind of all sound like synonyms to one another a bit. So I'm going to, so I'll, I'll tell you what the five are, and then maybe I'll give you a bit of an example of each. So the first type that's listed in the act is what's called professional misconduct. So this is on duty, blameworthy conduct. So this would be the nurse who curses at someone or um, the nurse who's, who, has a meltdown and throws something out of frustration, those kind of things. So it's that on-duty conduct that doesn't necessarily relate to your actual clinical skills and abilities. That's a separate category. So it's all that other stuff. It can be communication. It can be, I know documentation is a skill for sure. I agree, but sometimes documentation will fall into this category or um, most of the time, these are sort of behavioral things or communication things that fall into the misconduct piece. The second bucket is exactly those clinical skills and abilities, incompetence. So you're incompetent in your actual skills, whether that's, you know, sort of your medication administration, it could be your assessment skills, it could be your critical thinking related to those assessment skills. It could be, you know, your ability to start an IV or put in a catheter or to do a dressing change, any of those kind of real core skills and abilities. If you're not showing competent execution of those skills and abilities, it would fall into the incompetence um, category. Now, the third one is conduct unbecoming. And I know this one's always the one that people raise an eyebrow about. This is off-duty conduct. That's the easiest way to distinguish this category. This is the stuff that happens when you're not maybe in the workplace. So where I see a lot of this, social media. <laughs> please, 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 please pause before you post. Um, specifically, if you have your name tag on, if you identify yourself as a registered nurse, if you have your uniform on, if you are in the workplace doing social media posts and reels and, and uh, forgive me, I'm not as cool as my kids, but I, I, I have opened every platform there is because I get complaints from every, every single platform that's out there. But my terminology when I refer to Snapchat or SnapMap or whatever is all, I'm not that cool. But just be careful what you put on social media. We've had complaints about everything from, some of them are very easy, very clear cut, right? If you're in the workplace, you're wearing your uniform, you're using supplies from the workplace and you're giving nursing advice over social media, 
that's going to be disciplinary. That's out of bounds. Um, some of them are a little, you know, some of them have gone to the Supreme Court. You're a nurse giving commentary about care a family member received in a public facility. That's gone to the Supreme Court because there's a freedom of speech issue involved in that. And, and it's messy and it's not very clear. So there's a gray area in the social media and then there's a really red area in the social media. And I'm going to say steer way clear of that gray area because you don't, as much as you may feel you have a right to get on social media and give your personal opinion about a healthcare issue or a healthcare facility, you're setting yourself up for someone to complain. And when someone files that complaint form, you are going to be bound to respond to it. And that is a process that if you can avoid, you really don't want to go down that road because it's fraught with nuances. And is it worth your professional license to get on social media and vent about a situation that happened in the workplace or a colleague, even if you don't identify them? So I'm going to say be very, very careful the other place I see this is text and messenger communication between colleagues. So you have a, a personal riff with someone who you happen to work with and you start, you know, sort of having a, a text argument with them. And you know what? What happens in your personal life is probably none of my business. But every so often people go over the line and say, well, you know what? I'm your supervisor, or you wait and see what so-and-so at work thinks about this, or, well, you know what? I know this happened at work and I've got, you know, don't go there. That's just messy. And that is all the kind of stuff that falls into this bucket. This is also the criminal conviction piece. If you get convicted of a criminal offense and you fail to report it to the college, this is where it will fit um, because there's an absolute duty to report it. Again, if it's something that's none of our business, it may not have any implication to your practice, but you have to report it. Um, if you're convicted and somehow we haven't been made aware of it previously of something that might, like if you're convicted of theft and you work with a vulnerable population, that might impact what we do with it because there might be a relevant connection to, are you trustworthy? Are we putting the public at risk if you continue to work in a vulnerable sector with people who, who might have objects that are thievable? So just that's that bucket. The next bucket of conduct deserving sanctions, incapacity or unfit to practice. This can be a number of things. The most common thing we see are addictions. Um, so folks who have substance misuse disorders would um, sometimes self-report. And sometimes it comes out through the woodwork, like I said earlier. Sometimes it comes to us through professional practice, all kinds of things. But this that's one element of these. We've also had situations where people have, um, you know, other medical illnesses like brain tumors. Um, that they weren't aware of that impact their practice, that they come to us and all of a sudden we realize, oh my goodness, this isn't someone who's incompetent. They're suffering from, from we, we had a situation where someone who was, you know, had been working for years and years and years and years and years and just was never going to retire. But then all of a sudden started to have some indications that their cognitive ability was declining. So those kind of things would fit into this category. Anything um, that impacts your ability to Functioning. I mean, it could be 
not that it would be disciplinary, but a broken leg would impact your ability to function. Not that that would necessarily be a disciplinary matter. And the last bucket is breach of the act, the regulations or code of ethics. Most the breach of ethics is the catch-all bucket. Almost everything that happens in the other four categories is also going to be a breach of ethics. So you'll see a lot of the breach of ethics ones that um, when we do our stats reporting, that's always the tallest number, tallest column on the graph because it's a bit of both. Um, but when we're talking about breach of the act or regulations, the most common things we see here are people working without a license. So my my practical tip here is if you go on a leave for any particular length of time, mat leave or pat leave is usually the most common. Do not even start your uh, reorientation back to work until you have called the college and reverted your license to a practicing status. Most people switch to non-practicing when they go on extended leave. Even your online work at home that is part of your reorientation to work or orientation to a new job is considered practice and you need to have a practicing license to do it. Rule of basic rule of thumb is if you're getting paid to do something that requires you to be a registered professional, you need to have a practicing license. Please make sure you have a practicing status before you enter into any kind of reorientation. That's the most one common place we see these allegations. The other one is failing to remit your CCP. So the team is making CCP easier and easier and easier. Um, so really, and, and, the, and really anything you do that is education and, and refreshes your practice or engages you in learning something new in your practice can account for your CCP learning hours. So please engage in the CCP process because if you remit nothing, you will get an allegation. It will actually become a disciplinary matter and you'll get an allegation in the mail saying you have failed to remit your CCP and now you're going to have a disciplinary history. Even if you don't think you have enough hours to meet the requirement, submit something. If you submit something, the CCP team will work with you to see where what they need to do to help you bolster that or find more opportunities for education. Generally, if you submit something, it's not going to be an allegation. If you submit something completely frivolous, yes, that's going to be an allegation. If you say, well, you know what, I took a dance class and somehow that now relates to nursing education, we might question that. And if we think you're just being sort of tongue in cheek and, and sort of, um, you know, sort of stubborn about it, it might be but submit something. So that's, those are the buckets. There's five. And like I say, sometimes they are sort of confusing as to what is what. In our bylaws under Article 9, there are definitions of each of those terms and examples of what falls into each of those categories. So, but if in all doubt, call practice. Call the practice team and say, this happened, that happened, I witnessed this, I saw something. Um, have those conversations so that you're aware and if you're like, you know, better to be proactive and ask and be well informed and conduct yourself appropriately than to uh, put your head in the sand and hope something goes away because it likely won't.
Brenda, uh, I, I just want to, sorry, Kelly, I just oh, sorry, want to step ahead. in there and make a, a just to <clears throat> clarify now with the online portal um, and it was with the old MyCCP, but now with the Alinity member pro portal, um, the system won't allow you to uh, continue on with your licensure renewal unless you have the required hours, whether it's to 24 hours of learning or if you come back throughout the licensure year and you're prorated. So um, I, I just want to make that clear to everyone that you have to submit the required hours according to your licensure in order to continue on to renew your license. So, um, but again, there are requirements if you get audited and there's information that needs to be updated to Alinity or whatever, then um, that that is required. And if if you don't put it in, then it, the file, your their file, file will go to yourself. Or if you put gibberish in and things like you had mentioned, then that would go to you as well. So, so sorry about that, Kelly. I just wanted to no, uh, just, make, just do that clarification. Yeah. And um, um, just going back to, I guess, the, the conduct of service station very quickly, um, especially that uh, incapacity or unfit, um, like Michelle and I, when we do, uh, you know, talks with registrants and with students, we really uh, talk about that um, fitness to practice piece and how it really is your own responsibility to reflect upon your fitness to practice and uh, seek out support and resources, let your manager know. And, you know, maybe there's things that can be done uh, to support you in the workplace before you're, you find yourself in a place where you're, you're facing um, that conduct or serving of sanction with the college. So I just wanted Absolutely. to quickly mention Absolutely. Great that. reminder for people because it, you know, it is, it, again, if you can avoid, I mean, we don't want people coming down the PCR road. I, I always <laughs> laugh. I say, I'm the person in the college you don't want to know. Um, and if I never meet you, that's great. Um, I, that's kind of my rule of thumb. Yeah, because as much as our goal is remediation, these things are stressful and we appreciate that. And, and no one sets out to be involved in a PCR matter. And so if we can keep everybody on the other side of the line, that's the way we, that's, that's our preference. So Brenda, I know you got um, into the difference um, between allegation and complaint, but could you very briefly, just to reinforce the, I guess, the message to registrants, what's the difference between an allegation and a complaint? So a complaint is what comes in the door on a form and basically it's unproven. And, and only once that complaint is um, set for a hearing is it truly called a complaint or once someone acknowledges and admits the conduct and we have that acknowledgement on file through that resolution agreement. Then it becomes, yes, I had a complaint against me and it was resolved by ADR. Yes, I have a complaint against me. It went to a hearing and it was either dismissed or uh, found to be uh, confirmed. Thank you. Brenda, can you talk a little bit about uh, duty to report? What does that mean? We, we often hear that sometimes from registrants, um, and uh, I don't think uh, a lot of registrants has a really good understanding of, of what that means for them, that duty to report. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, sh I can, and, and this is, I think, probably, uh, I know we're getting close to the end of our time, and I, it's a very uh, appropriate way to sort of uh, leave people, because this is actually a critical piece of information. Um, in Section 20 of the Act, 
the act says that an RN who has knowledge from direct observation or objective evidence of another registered nurse's conduct deserving of sanction shall report that to me and and specifically to me, not to the college, not to your manager, to the director of professional conduct review. And the same obligation um, actually um, holds true for employers who terminate a registrant um, or put restrictions on someone's employment based on conduct deserving the sanction. So that's where sometimes we get a complaint from an employer saying we've terminated someone because they breached a policy and they're reporting it to us. That's where where they have a situation of dealing with through an HR matter as a competency concern or a practice concern. Professional practice will also report to us. So most of our actual complaint forms come from the employer that way. Um, But as an individual registrant, if you witness another nurse um, engaging in conduct deserving of sanction, you have an obligation to call the director of professional conduct review. You should also report it to your manager. You should also manager. You should also follow up and make sure your manager's getting the appropriate individuals in the uh, organization, like professional practice, involved. But your obligation is also to report it to the director. And if you have questions, if you see something in the workplace and you're not sure whether your colleague was engaged in conduct deserving sanction, call practice. Practice will help you navigate that. And if they feel, yeah, this could be conduct deserving sanction, they'll forward you on to me. Now, I need to be clear. This is duty to report not duty to file a complaint form. Everywhere else in the act, we either talk about complaint complaints or allegations. This is the one part of the act that speaks to reporting, which means you need to call and report. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the one that has to put in the complaint form. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the one that files like, you know, official paperwork. It means you're bringing it to my attention then I can go through my processes. It could very well be that professional practice is already involved in this. They're already in the process of sending me a complaint form. I don't need more than one for each incident. So I know this is tricky because they're your colleagues or people you work with. They're the, it's the team that you're part of. And it's very challenging to be put in a position to bring something forward when you have a practice concern about a colleague. But you have an obligation. and practice will work with you to navigate those questionable things and if it does look like it could be conduct deserving the sanction you know it's a reporting to me either by email or phone call and I can follow up with you if they if I need to from the email may very well be it's already on my radar it's something I'm dealing with it may be that I need to follow another path to to figure out if there's there's already official knowledge of this that's going to come to me Um, it may be that I can file the allegation um, as the director. So there's lots of um, nuances there and it is difficult. And I know it puts people in difficult positions, but again, is protecting your colleague worth risking your own license? That's what this unfortunately um, sort of boils down to at the end of the day is if you fail to report something, it can be a disciplinary action against you for your 
failing to report. And we have had situations actually where we have followed through on that. Um, you know, it, it's often comes to us another way, but we do have registrants who have disciplinary history for failing to report. And it, like I said, it's report. Don't need to necessarily be the one that filed the complaint form. Just need to bring it to our attention. So the key is knowledge from direct observation or objective evidence. And then this triggers that duty to report. Right. And this okay. is where oftentimes the confusion comes in, right? Like, I mean, if you were in the med room and you objectively saw someone divert narcotics, I don't think you'd have a question that you have a duty to do something and report something and follow up on that. Sometimes it's suspicion. I think I saw, I don't know. I, I have a sneaky suspicion that this might be happening. Maybe you didn't see something, but the patient said, well, I asked the nurse for this. She said she'd bring it and you go and look and it's signed for the nurse says she brought it, but the patient says they never got it. You know, how do you navigate that? Um, some of those, so some of those things are, what do I really know? How much evidence do I really have? Am I acting on suspicion or do I have a reasonable amount? And sometimes it's a question of, is it conduct deserving a sanction either, right? Like, so we understand that these things aren't always as black and white. Um, and that's where those conversations, either with practice or with me, you're always welcome to pick up the phone and call me as well. Um, if it's more of a practice question, I might revert you back to the practice team. If it's clearly something that is conduct deserving of sanction, then, you know, I can help navigate that as well. So, Brenda, just a clue up, what are some tips when an, a registered nurse or nurse practitioner is questioning whether they have a duty to report um, another RN or MP to the college? And what some tips for anyone who may be going through um, either the QA, ADR, and tribunal adjudication? Um, I would say with respect to the duty to report, if in all doubt, call practice or call me and have those conversations because what happens is you may call me and I'm just going to put a note in your alinity file saying you called we had a conversation about something and that way if it blossoms into something that and later on someone comes back and said you failed to report this there will be a documentation on your file say you had a conversation with the director on this date about this issue you fulfilled your duty to report so if an all doubt call that's my that's my overarching piece on the duty to report. And in general, a couple of practical things. If you get communication from the college, please respond. Like, I, and we try not to spam you. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many emails I get from, I'm sorry, but the Avalon Hockey Association. <laughs> I get so <laughs> many emails. I miss everything because I don't open them anymore. We don't do that. So if you get something, particularly if it's coming now from our Alinity system, it's going to say complaints or PCR at CRNNL. If you get that, open that, open that, respond to it. Even if it's like, oh my gosh, I've been away on holidays for a week. I haven't had a chance to look at this. I need more time. Do something, respond somehow. Um, the other piece is keep your information in the registration database and Alinity up to date because we go by whatever email address you've given us, whatever street address you've given us, whatever phone number you've given us. And we had a registrant not too long ago who gave me a home phone number 
that actually still had an answering machine attached to it. And when I left a message, like, we never even checked that thing anymore. I said, you know, know I'm not surprised, but that's the only number I have for you. And um, I had an email address that was a work address, which sometimes if you're very frontline, you have those Eastern health or whatever email addresses that you never look at. So give me an email address that you actually look at. And, you know, there was no cell phone number listed. I think the address for that person was actually even at a date they had moved. And so just beware that you also have an obligation in, in the act, in the regs, to keep your contact information up to date. You have 30 days from the time those things change to update them. But give us information that we can actually contact you at um, because that's how we communicate with you. And if we don't get any communication back, then there becomes another issue about failing to respond to your regulator. So, um, yeah, so those are my key points. You know, make sure your license is in practicing status, remit your CCP, keep your information updated, respond to communication from the college, ask questions. That's really my top five tips. Right. Thanks so Excellent. much. Thank you, Brenda. And if people have questions after they go away and digest this or they have conversations that spur on other questions, by all means, my email address is on the website. Feel free to email me. My phone number's there. Give me a call. Uh, happy to have conversations or if you are affiliated with a work group or a, a class or a school group or a, what you know any kind of employment setting that wants to have further information on this, I'm more than happy to connect with you and see how we can support you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brenda. And thank you to all our listeners today for attending. It was a very interesting session. So thank you again, Brenda, very much. This has been a presentation of the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador.